Locked On NBA, the biggest stories, the local experts. Every Monday, we dig into the biggest stories in the NBA with the Locked On Podcast Network hosts. Today, we will stop in New Orleans to chat with Jake Madison of Locked On Pelicans about the Pelicans' upset win in Game 1 and what it means for the rest of the series. We'll go to Indiana to speak with Tony East of Locked On Pacers about their stunning Game 1 performance against the Cleveland Cavaliers. And we'll also do a quick stop in Orlando and in New York to discuss the firings of Frank Vogel and Jeff Hornacek, as well as potential replacements. It's all coming up. The biggest stories with the local experts on Locked On NBA. You are Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Hi guys, this is your Monday host of the Locked On NBA podcast, Josh Lloyd. I also host the Locked On Fantasy Basketball podcast five days a week, so you can check me out over there. The playoffs have started. We have got uh, all the game ones in the book, some interesting results, some interesting performances, some changes in uh, in coaching staffs across the league as well. We're going to be touching on a couple of the biggest performances across the weekend, as well as checking out what actually happened with some of those firings in Orlando and in New York and what that means for the future of those teams. So let's get stuck straight into it. I'm joined now by the jubilant host of the Locked On Pelicans podcast and a host of Locked On NBA uh, during the week as well. Jake Madison, the Pelicans get the uh, get the big victory, um, the first road victory of the playoffs. Uh, they're a team that I did pick to win this series, Jake, but not many others were as confident. Uh, how did you feel as the game was unfolding, and do you think that this performance from New Orleans is uh, a replicable thing? Do you think that they potentially now have the advantage over Portland, or is this a, a one-game, it's still sort of up-in-the-air situation? You know, I thought this was going to be a really close series from the outset, that if you know Portland did have an advantage, maybe it's 55 to 45, something like that, where this one was going to be very close. And that has to do with Drew Holiday in the backcourt being the terror that he's been on defense all year long, should be on the first uh, team all defense in the NBA here. And you saw him hold down Damian Lillard, slow down C.J. McCollum. And if he can do that, it's not going to be done to the degree that he did in game one. But you slow those guys down, you've got Anthony Davis there, you've got enough offensive firepower to play in the half court, to play in transition still. And I think they are going to be able to carry that over going forward. You know, Portland didn't play particularly well in this game, but neither did New Orleans. They didn't shoot particularly well in the half court. And I think as, bo- as both teams kind of get a little bit better and kind of feel each other out a little bit more, you'll see adjustments made. The Pelicans are going to probably focus on rebounding. And if they do that, you know, they'll be able to negate a lot of those second chance points that Portland had. So I think that alone is really going to give them kind of the driver's side on this series here. And I think they'll be able to get it done. And when you have Anthony Davis, I mean, you saw the monster game he had last night. He's going to carry this team. I'm glad you mentioned Drew because he was obviously fantastic. I was getting into arguments before this game happened about Drew Holiday with people telling me that he was an inferior player to De'Aaron Fox, Buddy Heald, Torian Prince, uh, among others, which was absolutely mind-blowing that people thought that. But he is underrated. But I think after this performance, the exposure of what Holiday's done all season will be um, will be going out to a, to a wider audience. And he was obviously fantastic. Davis was fantastic. An interesting thing I thought that the Pelicans did in this game, and we saw that basically since... 
Demarcus Cousins was injured, apart from maybe the last two or three games of the season. Emeka Okafor had started pushing Anthony Davis out to the fore, but Okafor didn't see the court here at all. Do you think that this is something that, for some, you know, Gentry had persisted with it for two months, and then, you know, the last four or five games of the regular season where, well, this isn't going to work. Do you think that this is just it for that Okafor experience, and we're going to see the Miritich Davis front court getting 35, 36 minutes a night? Yeah, I think that's what you're going to primarily see. They said they're still going to use Okafor. It's just going to be kind of matchup dependent and situational. So there's a chance you'll see him come in, but the Pelicans are trying to play with a much shorter rotation. They don't really go more than eight guys deep. It'll be tough if you've got to go nine, I think, as well. But they might need to get him some more minutes because you saw in this game that Miritich and Anthony Davis were visibly gassed by the end of the fourth quarter. You might need to get those guys a little bit more of a break somewhere in the maybe towards the end of the third. Give them a little bit of a longer rest to keep them, you know, a bit fresher down the stretch Okafor is going to be needed if they need if they're still going to get outworked on the boards Portland does a very good job of offensive rebounding New Orleans has been the 21st defensive rebounding team all year that's a big key to this series because the Pelicans cannot give up those second chance points have to inbound the ball and let that Portland defense get set because they want to get out and run in transition when they have man advantages and mismatches to get those high quality shots at the rim they've been producing since DeMarcus Cousins went down Okafor is going to be really key for that you saw the minutes really go to check Diallo he has kind of that springiness and he's a very good rebounder however he can be a liability on offense he doesn't have a great jump shot so that's going to be one of the adjustments that the coaching staff is going to need to look at film and say can we ride Anthony Davis for 40 minutes in every single game without him wearing out and if they can't they're going to need to get some quality minutes at the center position or the power forward position from someone else the Pelicans had a fairly substantial lead for the majority of this game, but Portland did come back late. And there's been a little bit of criticism about the uh, the way that the Pelicans ran their rotation and with Ian Clark playing minutes down the stretch there with his defense perhaps being uh, an issue. Did you see that as a problem personally? Do you see that as something that could be exploited by Portland as we move forward? And what's the solution there for New Orleans? Do they start to give... you know, Etwan Moore only played 27 minutes. Does he need to play more? What do they do in that scenario? Yeah, I think you'll see Etwan Moore kind of get bumped up minutes-wise so that he can try and stay on McCollum. You can keep uh, Drew Holiday on Lillard. You know, I think they have a lot of confidence in Ian Clark. Clark's had a lot of playoff experience against Lillard, against this Portland team. Don't forget, he started for the Warriors last year in the first round while Steph Curry was out. I think it was just kind of, you know, those guys got hot at the right time when he was out on the court, which makes his plus-minus look a little bit worse. But you saw him hit also two big threes that kind of shifted momentum away from Portland when they were starting to gain some steam and get it back to New Orleans and the Pelicans, which was really big. I think they're still going to rely on him. His numbers don't look great from this game, but I'm not overly worried about it. If it happens in another game, then yeah, we've got to kind of talk about this and there'll be some concern. But you're also not going to just hold Lillard and McCollum to three points and a half on a nightly basis. Those guys are going to get hot at times. They're going to score. They're such good shooters. There's not really a chance of just shutting them out. You know, and that's going to happen when someone's on the court. I think it just happened to be when Ian Clark was out there that that was when they got hot. Jake, it's obviously a, a great start for the Pelicans. How did you pr- project the series out before this game, and has your thoughts changed after this Game 1 victory? 
No, you know, I think this was the ideal first-round matchup for the Pelicans. They were 2-2 two and two against Portland this year, winning at home and on the road, and a lot of those did happen with DeMarcus Cousins being in there. But then they had the game in New Orleans back on March 27th. That was a four-point Portland win where Anthony Davis rolled his ankle, didn't really play very well after that. You didn't have any Rajon Rondo in that game either. He was sitting with rest. So now both those guys are back, one's healthy. You know, I think it really does give New Orleans a lot of confidence now that they can win this game, they can win this series, which I think most people kind of had this one a little bit closer. Maybe Portland was the the favorite slightly. But I thought New Orleans really had a good chance. This is a team they match up well with. Nurkic, who's great defending the rim, is either going to struggle defending Anthony Davis out in space and on the perimeter, or he's going to have to take on a blitzing Drew Holiday who went to the rim and scored a bunch last night. That leaves then Anthony Davis a little bit free to come back for putback dunks, different things like that, which you saw. So the matchups really do work well in New Orleans' favor, as long as you can slow down one of Lillard and McCollum, which they've done throughout the year in these four matchups. So I think this is kind of what you saw from them. Again, those two guys aren't going to play as poorly as they did in game one but i expect new orleans to play a little bit better as well if they can kind of shore up that front court rotation with the rebounding i think new orleans is a very good chance to win this series jake we're all going to be watching this one really closely uh, it seems like it's going to be probably the, the most competitive perhaps well obviously we don't know how every other series is going to work out but these teams seem relatively e- evenly matched we've got the, the road team getting a game one victory we're going to be watching intently to see how far Damian Lillard or Anthony Davis can go in these playoffs if you want to hear more from the Pelicans perspective Jake will be hosting the Locked On Pelicans podcast all during the week and you can hear all that information there Jake thanks for coming on and, uh, and chatting about the big winning game one thank you so much for having me I'm joined now by the host, or one of the hosts of the Locked On Pacers podcast, Tony East. We're here to discuss the uh, the massive, massive win, not only in terms of margin of victory, but just in terms of, uh, I guess, surprise to many people uh, of the Indiana Pacers over the Cleveland Cavaliers in Game 1. Most people were stunned by that, Tony. Were you? Uh, a little bit. Um, you know, I kind of thought... Like most people, the Kevin Love at center lineups for the Cavs would just dictate a crazy good offense, and the Pacers' only way to win would be to outscore them. Um, but to hold the Cavs to just 80 points, and I mean, in the first and fourth quarter combined, the Cavs scored only 29. I mean, the, the Pacers' defense was just unbelievable, and I was shocked at how well that end of the floor they played. Anytime you saw any pr- prediction of any series on, on Twitter, and, and I'll be honest, I, I did predict the Cavs to win this series in five, and, and that's obviously not looking good at this point. Uh, so, so did I. Yeah, okay. Well, look, and but I saw people predicting the Pacers to win, and every comment after that, you know, take away your blue check, we don't know what you're talking about, LOL, what, you know, but the Pacers have been consistently good this season, the Cavs have had their ups and downs, and they brought it to them here in this game, and they smashed them basically from the, the opening tip. Uh, I was told Miles Turner was trash, but he played well. Um, Boyan Bogdanovich <laughs> hit his shots, Oladipo was... Exactly the same as he has been in every regular season game, getting steals whenever he wants, scoring, doing all this stuff. How do you think that this game um, projects out the rest of the, of the, the series? Because I think we can both admit that the Cavs aren't going to shoot 38% and 24% from three in all of these games. So when they actually get back to their regular shooting, can the Pacers step it up offensively to go ahead of that Cavs team when the offensive cl- when the offense clicks in? Yeah, you stole my thunder because I think the least projectable thing from this game was the Cavs shooting. You know, 60% from the free throw line and only 8 of 34 from 3 uh, is pretty unlike their usual MO. They're, they've got a ton of good shooters. You know, Corver missed all his threes. Um, Ronnie Hood was 1 for 4. Jeff Green was over 3. Clarkson was over 3. Calderon over 3. And none of them were like terrible looks. 
Um, so that does kind of bode well for Cleveland going forward. But at the same time, Boyan Bogdanovich was one for six from deep. Darren Collison was one for four from deep. Uh, and the Pacers themselves only shot 60% from the free throw line. So in a way, both teams can end up shooting better going forward, which, you know, if the, if the Pacers can play like they did in this game, that could uh, lead into their hands. Um, but I think their defense, you know, since the all or since the all break, excuse me, since January 1st, they were a top five defense. Um, that's pretty unknown around the league. They were just absolutely killing it. And that really bled into this game. You even said Oladipo was getting the steals. Uh, he had four of them in this game. And that's his thing. He can really just swipe it away whenever he wants. Turner's a really, really good rim protector, which people who see him get only three rebounds don't understand anything about rim protection. Um, <laughs> Boyan Bogdanovich didn't suck guarding LeBron. Thaddeus Young did a great job on Kevin Love. Like, I don't see any of these matchups suddenly swinging in a drastic way to the other team. So I really think that there's a lot that can be taken from this game and put into other games. It's just, you know, if the Cavs get hot, that's what really will change it. Um, we've heard all, all the stats uh, about LeBron, yeah, not losing first round games at all for I think this one that last 21 straight first round uh, matchups, you know, sweeping all those opponents, not losing a game one in, I don't know, six, six years or, or whatever it is. And the, the Pacers have, have obviously uh, broken all of those streaks now. Um, Interesting thing to me here is Nate McMillan used basically a regular season rotation. There's very little different in this, you know, lineup in the way that he used his players as opposed to how he did in the regular season. Do you think that he's just going to continue to run that, that formula, which was successful in this game and through the regular season, you know, through the rest of these games? Or if the game was closer, are there adjustments that he would likely make with the way that he's using his players? Yeah, the Pacers do have the advantage of, um, really, they only played nine guys in this game, but they do have a, a 10 deep rotation with guys that really fit together. Um, Glenn Robinson being the 10th guy who didn't play in this game uh, in, fit, in lieu of Trevor Booker. But I really think he'll continue to go deep and use that kind of regular season rotation just because that certain guys fit better with certain other guys. You know, uh, when Victor's out, they, they, they didn't have it at the... Uh, the end of the second, or in the middle of the second quarter when, or the third quarter, excuse me, I'm stumbling over my words. Um, in the middle of the third when Vic was out and Darren Collison was also out, you know, that was the Cavs' biggest run. Um, but usually when Victor's out, Collison's in, so they still have the shot creation and scoring that they need. Um, and Nate's been really good. Uh, I think that's been his biggest strength, honestly, the whole season, um, is getting the right unit in at the right times. You know, the closing lineup is never the starting lineup. It's always some random variation. Uh, he knows the exact right times to put Lance Stevenson's crazy butt in the game. He knows the exact right times when to steady the game with Corey Joseph. Um, I think that is something that you're going to continue to see is them go deep and really mix and match uh, their players. Um, you mentioned Lance Stevenson, who had some good moments. <laughs> he had some, uh, I guess, uh, some Lance moments on, on, on in both directions. He seems to obviously play very well with Indiana, but he also has this moment of being able to do these things against LeBron. Um, how often is your heart in your mouth when he's on the court? Uh, I am a known Lance Stevenson hater. Yes, uh, so the Pacers, <laughs> the Pacers circles. Um, this is as good as he can be, especially on the road. He's really way better in Baker's life than on the road, which is a, some phenomenon that I don't understand. Um, but he was. This is as good as you can expect from him in a road game. You know, only two turnovers, it felt like a lot more, um, <laughs> even watching the game. Um, and shooting almost 50% is exactly what you want from him. But what he brings that that is unquantifiable is just energy. You know, he makes those exciting plays, like that dunk um, in the first quarter. Uh, he just does stuff like that, and I didn't end up. There's re- I mean, he was, the, he was only minus one, despite, you know, making constant negative plays. And uh, he, he does seem to be the only guy in the NBA who can get into LeBron's skin somehow. You know, you see him yapping at him all the time. So that that is a factor that is, is impossible to quantify. So he does have some value that, that is uh, 
interesting in terms of measure, although he does make a lot of negative value plays on the court. One thing that we talked about earlier on, and, and we'll, uh, we'll we'll get out of here on this, we talked about the Cavs shooting poorly, but, Tony, if we look at Indiana, Darren Collison led the league in three-point shooting, and he was two for nine from the field in, in total in this one and hit one of his four threes. Boyan Bogdanovich took 17 shots, the second most on the team. He hit five of them. So two of their major you know, weapons, especially from deep, they weren't connecting on their shots either. So it's not like the paces were red hot and hitting everything. It's like, oh, man, this is unsustainable shooting and the Cavs couldn't hit anything. The Cavs were terrible in their shooting. We, we understand that. But massive improvement can come from Collison there. And it can also come from Bogdanovich, who can get hot and can get hot for streaks of games in a row. So it's not like all doom and gloom, like, oh, this is best case scenario for Indiana and things are going to even up because they can still actually get better from an offensive point of view, can't they? I really, uh, I really agree with that, um, especially on the Bogdanovich front because none of his looks are ever bad, you know. Uh, it's random because he, oh, it seems like he always hits the contested jumper, but he is so good at taking the right shot. And, you know, him going one for six is just like, it's just not his day because he, when he's on, I mean, he's one of the best shooters in the NBA. Um, so I really think that he's a guy who can easily turn it around. And Collison, two of nine in this one, one of his favorite shots is that random fadeaway from the elbows. Uh, I wish he'd stop shooting that. But, um, you know, if he gets that shot going, he's really dangerous because he's great at snaking the pick and roll. He's a great three-point shooter. And I think the shots will fall for him eventually, too. I mean, George Hill was terrible in this game. So Collison can really take advantage of him going forward, too. So I agree with you that their offense could even go to another level than they were tonight. And with Oladipo cooking like that, if everyone else is cooking, too, I mean, there's just no way to beat this team. Yeah, so look, it's going to be a really interesting series. Obviously, it's ripe for upset potential. We've had upset in Game 1. The Cavs looked poor on both ends, but things are going to be different for Game 2. So to get all the uh, the previews for Game 2, to get the recaps there, make sure you're checking out Tony and Adam over on Locked On Paces. Tony, thanks for jumping on Locked On NBA here to talk about a, a massive Game 1 victory. Thanks for having me, Josh. Everybody, uh, keep watching the series. It's going to be a good one. I'm joined now by the host of the Locked On Knicks podcast, James Marceda. The Knicks let go their coach, Jeff Hornacek, last week. And uh, James, an interesting bunch of candidates have emerged. Yeah, um, basically everyone has been <laughs> named at this point. <laughs> I Seriously, I think I've heard about 12 to 13 names mentioned as possibilities. I mean, a lot of that is just everyone's writing a piece about it, so everyone gets thrown out there. Uh, there have been three who have been confirmed, though, for interviews so far, and that is Mark Jackson, um, David Fisdale, and Jerry Stackhouse. What about uh, David Blatt? Is uh, his name has come up as well? Has he been confirmed for an interview yet? He has, as of you know, about an hour ago. I've been watching some playoff basketball, so I haven't seen like the latest tweet as of a second ago, but. As of an hour ago, the Knicks have been in touch with Blatt's camp, but an interview has not been technically scheduled, which is, you know, the kind of terms that we speak in when it's this time of year and, like, whose plane is in what airport, you know, et cetera. But um, it is reported that there's mutual interest in at least an interview. Yeah. The other name that, that's come up as well is that the Knicks have received permission to interview Mike Woodson, obviously a former coach in New York. Um, what's your feel? It feels... You know, the, the Fisdale one is interesting. The Stackhouse one is very interesting. But the, the I guess, propensity to go back to the Woodson well or to go back to Jackson because he was a Knicks legend feels a little bit regressive in its thinking. What's what's your thoughts on you know, going back to the, the well, moving backwards instead of perhaps looking forwards? 
I mean, I think that would definitely be a mistake if Perry and Mills went in that direction. I do think there's a lot of weird pressure in New York to do certain things. Um, honestly, I would be shocked if they hired uh, a Mark Jackson or a Mike Woodson. Like, I would be shocked. But I think at this point it would be more annoying in some ways dealing with the New York posts of the world to not bring those guys in. Like there's so many fans who are clamoring for it. And, you know, so you placate those guys, you say you've done a thorough search. And for me, best case scenario is then they come up with an inspired choice, hopefully. And they can at least say, Hey, look, we interviewed your favorite guy, but you know, this guy interviewed well, we like what he brings to the table, et cetera, et cetera. All the reasons you hire a coach. And you know, here he is or she, Hey, Becky Hammett, I hope she gets a, I hope she gets a shot. So I'm really interested to see how that would go down. But before I, I let you go here, James, a couple of questions, just quick quick answers here. A, who do you think will get the job? And B, who do you want to get the job if they are different? Um, I really don't have a read on who I think will. I, I don't think it's going to be a retread. I think if you see a retread, it'll be that kind of... And when I say retread, sometimes that's, you know a little bit too intense a word for the kind of people like David Fisdale. If they hire someone who's already been a head coach, I think it'll be someone like him who's had like one stop, who's young, who's considered a player's coach. Um, I want someone, I just like someone who's not that big of a name yet. Like to me, if you hit a pick like that out of the park, it says that you're really plugged in and that you are really unafraid to make mistakes as a GM, so like I don't even know who that would be, but my preference in an ideal world is someone who Perry knows because he has great connections and he's sharp enough to know that this is the man or woman to get the job done, no matter what the critics say. It's going to be very interesting to see how it all works out. Uh, I'm sure I'll have plenty of thoughts if Mark Jackson is hired in particular, but we'll see how it all uh, how it all goes down. James, thanks for jumping on and uh, and chatting about the uh, the new new start in New York. No problem. Thanks for having me. I'm joined now by the host of the Locked On Magic podcast, Philip Rossman Reich, to discuss the uh, the firing of Frank Vogel down in Orlando. Philip, um, as with all these coaching change situations, it's uh, it's when a new GM is brought in and there's an existing coach there that it tends to go sour after a season or two, and that's exactly what ha- has happened here in Orlando. To start with. Do you think the firing by the new front office was justified given Vogel's performance over the past two seasons? Uh, you know, if it's if it's just based on performance over the past two seasons, I I really don't think it was. Uh, the Magic's roster is has been a mess the last two years, to say the least. Uh, obviously, last summer, they tried to push all in for the playoffs. They grabbed Serge Ibaka in a trade that looks worse and worse by the day. Um, they signed Bismack Biombo. They they decided to go really big, and when that didn't work, they tried to go really really small, and uh, they they just they weren't able to do very much. They're kind of capped out, and so they they have a very flawed roster. They they have a roster that frankly doesn't have a ton of talent, uh, and the expectation levels were understandably pretty low even for this team. Uh, I think you know considering the injuries that the Magic had this year, considering the lack of talent that they had. Vogel did about all he could to get the team to 25 wins. I mean, they're probably a little bit better than the record indicates because of all those injuries. They probably lost a few games here and there because they were just they, they, the lineup just changed so often. Uh, but I, I think it was unfair to pin this whole season on Vogel. This has been a, um, I, I thought uh, one writer, I think for Yahoo Sports, put it best. It's been kind of a, a walk through the wilderness with the Magic over the last six years. Um, and the problem really to me is the roster more than it is the coach, and I think some continuity might have been a better thing for the team in the long run. Yeah, look, I'm conflicted with, with Vogel. He made some curious decisions, but 
were those decisions forced by the roster, like you know, playing Aaron Gordon at small forward the season before, but then, of course, you know, bringing Biombo and Abarca in, he really didn't have too much choice there. So I have been critical of him at times, but you know, some of it hasn't necessarily been his fault. His reputation around the league is uh, is fairly good, and he, I'm sure he'll get another opportunity at somewhere at some other team in the near future. But, Philip, who are the main names who are being considered that you have heard for this uh, magic coaching position that is now open. And to be honest, it doesn't look like the most appealing job that's currently on the market, but there is still young talent there and another high, hopefully uh, hopefully top three uh, lottery pick coming in. Yeah, it, it's definitely an interesting interesting job, I think, uh, just because of the opportunity that might be there in Orlando. You've got a young guy in Jonathan Isaac. You've got a, a, a guy who really took a big leap in his game this year in Aaron Gordon. Uh, and then you have that high draft pick. Even if it doesn't end up in the top three, you're looking at a top five, top six pick in this year's draft. Um, that feels like it could be something. Uh, as long as you get a commitment from ownership, a commitment from management to stick with you for four, three or four years to, to help build you up and, and give you the support you need, it could be an interesting job. I mean, Orlando is a place that has been able to attract free agents in the past, they just need to get that base established in the draft. As far as names, um, like you said, I don't think they'll get any of the bigger names out there. A lot of Magic fans want to go after David Fisdale. I just don't think the team is close enough to winning to go after a name like him. I think they're going to look for kind of an up-and-coming coach. The, the name that I, the names that keep I keep hearing bounced around uh, are Toronto Raptors assistant coach Nick Nurse, who's largely credited with the Raptors' transformation on offense this year. Um, he's someone that has been in the league a long time, uh, has a good shooting act, good shooting uh, reputation as a shooting coach, um, and a good offensive reputation. And he and Jeff Wellman obviously worked together when he was with the Toronto Raptors. The other name that keeps coming up is another Raptors guy, Raptors 905 this time, uh, J- Jerry Stackhouse, another guy that had been on the Raptors organization, has done a really good job building up the, the Raptors 905 G League program, uh, and, and is just another good young develop, good development coach. And I think that's really what the Magic are looking for here is a guy who's going to help develop the young talent already on the roster, keep them going on that upward trajectory, add in the X's and O's as they mature, and then eventually grow with them into, I mean, as, as most teams would like, grow with them into a playoff team and kind of help them get up to that level. Um, other than that, it, it, it seems like the, the, the Magic are still kind of putting their list together. Um, I've heard Igor Kopp. I always get his name wrong. Igor Kokoskov from the Utah Jazz, former assistant coach with the Orlando Magic. There's also been some some rumor, some thought that the Magic might go after two, a couple of former Magic players, former New Orleans Pelicans coach Monty Williams, as well as Dallas Mavericks assistant coach and Magic fan favorite Daryl Armstrong might also get consideration for the job. I saw Josh Robbins had an article in the Orlando Sentinel a couple of days ago mentioning James Borrego, who, of course, was an interim coach there when Jacques Vaughn was fired a couple of seasons ago. Borrego's uh, tenure in Orlando, I wouldn't have said it was uh, inspiring, but he is doing some good work as an assistant of the San Antonio Spurs. How would you and general Magic fan populace feel about a Borrego return? Uh, it would be interesting to say the least. I mean, I obviously I, I mentioned uh, Igor from from the Jazz, a former head coach. Uh, that the, was, uh, that the was head very, coach a very deft move there to avoid the pron- pronouncing the uh, surname. <laughs> yes, yes, it was. Yes, it was. Um, and, and and you know maybe I'll have to learn how to pronounce it eventually. <laughs> but he was a, he was actually an assistant under Jacques Vaughn, so I don't think it'd be completely unprecedented uh, for the Magic to go out and bring someone that was part of sort of the the Rob Hennigan era of assistant coaches, I think bringing, uh, while Borrego, I think, is probably one of the hotter names out there, a guy who is going to get a, a fairer shot 
at being a head coach. I think it would be a little weird to bring him back so soon as a head coach. Uh, he in, he did interview for the head coaching job that eventually went to Scott Skiles. And while well, you know most Magic fans and, and probably most observers would say, well, the whole interview process that summer was was kind of a sham. That the Magic were always going to hire Scott Skiles because he was just a a favorite of of ownership. Uh, you know, a guy a guy that was a fan favorite as a, as a player to begin with, but a guy who had a really strong relationship with ownership, and that's how he got the job, and that's kind of how he wielded some power in there. Uh, I think it would be a little weird to have interviewed Bore- had Borrego as your interim coach, fired him, or let him go, let him walk, and then bring him back a few years later, even with new management. But Jeff Weltman, the president of basketball operations, said, I have complete autonomy. I wouldn't have taken this job if I didn't have complete autonomy. So maybe what happened in the past doesn't matter with this group. Well, it is going to be very interesting. Of course, this team is always you know, got these young potential players that never seem to take this next step forward and perhaps you know, getting this new pick, getting a new coach with the right front office, um, maybe can all you know, mesh together into becoming a team that could rise up the standings in the years to come. I'm sure you're hoping for that, Philip, as are all Magic fans. And to hear the latest on the coaching search as it develops, make sure you're checking out Locked on Magic that Philip is hosting our five days a week. Philip, thanks for coming on and, uh, and talking about this uh, this Magic coaching search which seems to be a um a relatively regular occurrence unfortunately yeah it seems like every summer the magic are replacing somebody in the in that front in the front office or in the management type so uh it'd be nice to have a it'd be nice to have a summer where, where we're not going to a press conference in the middle of may absolutely thank you philip no problem thanks josh and there it is, another episode of Locked On NBA in the books. Make sure you're following me on Twitter, Josh Lloyd at RedRock underscore B-Ball. I am the lead fantasy analyst at Basketball Monster and the host of Locked On Fantasy Basketball as well. And make sure you're checking out right across the Locked On Podcast Network, NBA, NFL, and now Major League Baseball. And you can keep up to date with all of that over on LockedOnSports.com or follow our NBA-specific Twitter feed, Locked On NBA Net. Make sure you're checking out all of that and if you are listening to this podcast on apple Podcasts, go leave a five-star rating and a review and you can also find us on google play tune in stitcher and of course now spotify thank you so much for listening everyone say ya uh.